If you'll turn in your Bibles to our text of the morning in Genesis chapter 11, beginning with verse 31 through 12, 3, and then picking up the narrative in chapter 15, verse 1. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarah his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan but when they came to Haran they settled there the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran now the Lord said to Abram Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves." After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him, as righteousness. In the beginning, God the Father, through the agency of the Son, created out of nothing all that is not God by the word of His command. And since that time, moment by moment, has held in being all things by that same word of power, so that every new existence that happens is His peculiar creation. And therefore, God owns all things, has a purpose for all things, and on Him all things depend, absolutely. As the owner of all things, He has a right to do with us as He pleases. What pleases Him is the fulfillment of His purpose to fill the world with the knowledge of His glory and therefore the full-time vocation of every creature under heaven should be to glorify God by acknowledging his lordship and becoming like a little child and depending wholly on God for his merciful provision of everything that is good for us. But Genesis 3 tells the story that man, our first parents, became very enamored by the possibility of not relying on God's merciful promise and provision, not living for his glory, not advancing his purpose in creation. Lured by Satan, they chose rather to reject God's loving counsel, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and to become like God themselves. 
The moment of man's fall into sin was the moment when childlike reliance upon God began to seem distasteful, uncomfortable, as we would say today, unfulfilling. And fall was complete when the desire of man to rule his own life and promote his own glory became so strong that he scorned the wisdom and the power and the mercy of God by rejecting the provision of abundant life in the Garden of Eden. And the whole human race fell with Adam. We all come into the world prone to sin and do sin. So from the dawn of human history right down through all the generations to our own day, the essence of sin has been self-reliance and self-exaltation. It's not merely those heinous crimes that we read about in the world that inflames the righteous wrath of God. It's also that seemingly innocent and scarcely recognized self-deification that lies deep beneath all the sins that emerge from the human heart. And therefore, there is a terrible enmity between God in his holiness and man in his sin. The natural heart cannot submit itself to the Lord, Paul said in Romans 8, 7, but it seeks its own glory and deeply resists the gospel call to turn and become like little children and enter the kingdom. And from God's side, his righteousness will not allow him to be indifferent to the defamation done to his own glory through the sins of men. For he says in Isaiah, How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Hence the terrible gulf and enmity between holy God and sinful man, and hence the hopelessness of the human condition. And that brings us to the end of Genesis 11. And that's the plight of man. And now we arrive at a point in history which will prove of such tremendous importance as to shape the course of history in all the world, both in this age and in the age to come. And yet, like many of God's actions, his little mustard seed-sized actions, it's not a very big decision, seemingly obscure and insignificant. Scarcely what we would have done had it been our intention to reclaim creation for God and redeem the world. God zeroes in on one man, Abram a worshiper of idols in Ur of the Chaldees, not at all a likely candidate for God to choose. And he says to him, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In completely sovereign grace, 
the Lord comes to this undeserving idolater and says to him with life-creating authority, I choose you, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless the whole world. Go to a land that I will show you. That's an amazing thing. That begins the 2,000-year roller coaster relationship that God has with Israel. Repentance, apostasy. Repentance, apostasy. Until the fullness of time brings forth from this people a Redeemer for the world. Now, the main thing I want us to see this morning is that that 4,000-year-old relation to Abraham has tremendous significance for us today in our life as believers. Everything written about Abraham, Paul says, was written for our instruction that through the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And I think that means hope in the promises. Now, to accomplish this, I want to ask three questions about the covenant that God made with Abraham. First, what were the promises that God made to Abraham? Second, what were the conditions that had to be fulfilled in order for these promises to come true? And third, who are the heirs of the promises today? And that's the most important question of all. First then, what promises did God make to Abraham? I find it helpful to group these promises into three categories. The first category is this. God promised Abraham and his seed a great posterity, numberless descendants. That's why his name was changed from Abram to Abraham, people in Hebrew. And as a part of that same promise, they are going to have a land in which to dwell. Those two things in the first group. Genesis 12:2, I will make of you a great nation... And make your name great. Genesis 15:5. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. Genesis 13:14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give you and your descendants forever. Genesis 15:18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying. To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the first group of promises. A great posterity and a land in which to dwell. The second group of promises is more general and goes beyond these physical blessings. Genesis 15.6 is one of the most important verses in the whole Old Testament. Paul picks it up and makes very much out of it. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God justifies. That's the word that we pick up from Paul. He declares as righteous because of his faith, Abraham. And justification by faith is full of promise. If we start unpacking what that sentence implies, we're going to see that there are promises here of tremendous value. 
Now, ever since God had approached Abraham for the first time and said, you leave your land, I'm going to make of you a great nation and give you many descendants, he had remained childless, no children, wife barren, him himself getting very old. But God, who loves to do the humanly impossible, says in Genesis 15, 4, your own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Obviously, you are not able. So shall your descendants be. In other words, I'm going to act for you. God is going to do the work here. And Abraham, in a terrific reversal of Adam's sin, looks away from himself to God and trusts his word to be true and reliable. And that act of faith so honors the mercy and the power and the trustworthiness of God that God responds with the incomparable gift of justification. You're righteous, Abraham, in my sight. Now, that doesn't mean Abraham's not going to sin anymore. The story goes on and makes it very clear that he does sin. But it does make clear that he has been forgiven of his sins, past, present, and future. He stands just before the Lord. But now think of this. If there is no condemnation to Abraham anymore, then it is clear that Genesis 15:6 is full of promise. Just think of the implications. God reckoned his faith to him for righteousness must mean God is not against him anymore. He is for him with all his power. Not against him, but for him. Now, the way God expresses this to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 is this. He promises to be God to him. It says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. If God is your God, does not that mean all his power as God is being employed for all your good? He is at work for you in the world and unto eternity. He is for you. He will work for you. And that is true in this age and in the age to come. Let me illustrate from Abraham's life and from a word in the Gospels. Near the end of Abraham's life, there was no wife for his son Isaac. He did not want him to marry an idolatrous Canaanite woman. Therefore, he chooses his servant, puts his hand under his thigh and says, Swear to me, you will not take a wife from the Canaanites. Go back to Mesopotamia and get him a wife from my family. The servant goes and God graciously leads him straight to Rebekah. And he bows his head and worships and says these words about God's lifelong goodness to Abraham. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has never forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. There's a lifetime of the fruit of justification by faith. If God declares us righteous, and there is no condemnation. He is for us as our God. 
and will never stop pursuing us for good right up until we have a spray put in a church on our behalf. But not only in this life. And this too is implied in the Old Testament. Although the Old Testament doctrine of the eternal life is not clear. You know the Sadducees in Jesus' day did not believe in the resurrection of anybody from the dead. They came to Jesus one day testing him and queried him about this strange doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And here's the way Jesus answered them in Matthew 22:31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now that quote from Exodus 3:14 I am the God of Abraham, means that if God is your God and all his power is engaged to seek your good, death can't make it stop. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. When God is your God, death cannot have the last say. There will be a resurrection from the dead. So the very fact that God is Abraham's God and God is all-powerful implies to Jesus that there will be a resurrection of Abraham to inherit all his promises to the full. And Genesis 15:1 puts it all in a nutshell. God is your shield and your very great reward. Now, the third group of promises is this. All these blessings, that are promised to Abraham and to his seed will be enjoyed not only by Abraham, but to the world, but by the world. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Therefore, even though redemptive history has a very small mustard seed size beginning with this single man, Abraham, God has in view the world. God has a purpose for the centuries and it reaches even to us here in this sanctuary this morning. But before that, we need to ask the second question. What about conditions? Are there conditions laid upon these promises that must be fulfilled in order for them to come true? There's a lot of confusion about whether or not the Abrahamic covenant is conditional. But I think the confusion is very unnecessary. In fact, I think it is based on an assumption that is false. Namely, the assumption that if a covenant is conditional, it can't be certain of fulfillment. That's not true. Another way to put it would be that it's wrong to say if God says you must fulfill this in order to inherit this, therefore this is insecure. It's not insecure if what Ezekiel 36:27 says is true, namely that God puts his spirit in man and causes him to walk in his statutes, that is, fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Then both can be true.
both the conditionality of the promise and the certainty of its fulfillment. If God engages to work in and through Abraham so that he keeps the statutes of God, then the promise can be conditional upon that obedience and be secure, absolutely certain of fulfillment. And that's exactly what we find in the narrative. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and Genesis 15, 4 and 5, the promises are made without any qualifications whatsoever. They are going to be true. I will be your God. You are going to have a land. You are going to have a great posterity. You are going to be a blessing. No ifs, ands, or buts. But in Genesis 22, verse 16 to verse 18 we read that the fulfillment of these promises are conditional upon Abraham's obedience to God. Not perfect obedience, but obedience that springs from faith and reflects a changed life, trusting in the Lord. Here's what it says. He has just offered his son Isaac on the altar. The angel has stayed his hand, but his obedience was complete. And so the angel says... By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this. Don't miss that little word, because. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies, and by your descendants shall all the nations bless themselves because. You have obeyed my voice. So the fulfillment of all those glorious promises right down to our own experience of them are conditioned and conditional upon Abraham's obedience. And therefore the fulfillment of the promises was both conditional and certain. Here's another text in this regard, very important. Genesis 18:19. Here God says to Abraham, I have chosen... Abraham, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. So that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. In other words, the descendants must keep the ways of the Lord and do righteousness and justice if the promises are to be given. So they are stated absolutely. They will come true in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 and 15, 5 and 4. And they are stated conditionally. And that is not an inconsistency if, as this text implies, God chose Abraham to teach his children in such a way that they would fulfill the conditions of the covenants and so inherit the promises. Now, nobody should jump to the conclusion that since the promises are conditioned upon the obedience of the heirs, therefore this covenant of Abraham is a covenant of works. Because works are deeds done in self-reliance in order to earn blessings by showing ourselves meritorious. Works are deeds done in self-reliance to earn 
God's blessing by showing ourselves meritorious. But that is not the way Abraham fulfilled and had to fulfill the conditions of the covenant. His obedience sprang from faith, not works. It says that he offered up his son Isaac. Now, when he did that, it was not to earn God's favor. It was because, as Paul points out in Romans 4, he had such complete confidence that God could keep his promise to bring descendants through Isaac, though he slay him, hoping against hope and abandoning himself to the absolute trustworthiness of God. He was ready to slay the heir of the promises. And that's the key to all obedience. All obedience that fulfills the conditions of the covenant flows from faith, not from merit. And that means that the covenant of Abraham is just like the new covenant under which we live. For the new covenant under which we live is also conditional. As it says in John 3.36, He who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And Hebrews 5, 9, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not just say some prayer and invite him into their heart. The covenant of Abraham and the new covenant under which we live today are one covenant of grace. Because in those covenants, Promises are made to sinners who receive the promises by faith. Faith that is so completely relying on the trustworthiness, the power, and the mercy of God that it obeys. And that is the only faith that saves. And that brings us to the question of who are the heirs of these promises. Who are the beneficiaries of these stupendous promises of the covenant of Abraham? Genesis 17:7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed, that is your descendants, after you for an everlasting covenant. So the beneficiaries of Abraham's promises are his seed, his descendants. Then Genesis 17:4 says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, does that not imply that the seed, the, the descendants of Abraham, are not going to be only Jews? You are going to be the father. You are going to father descendants of many nations. And is that not then the way that Genesis 12, 3 will be fulfilled. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, the blessing of Abraham comes to his descendants. The descendants will include many nations, and therefore many nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed through faithful Abraham. Now, we turn to the New Testament. These hints of the gateway opening to the nations become very explicit in the Apostle Paul, especially. Paul faced an agonizing problem in his day. 
He went to the synagogues and he preached his heart out because he loved his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews. And what happened? For the most part, they kicked him out. A few believed, just a few, but then he had to turn to the Gentiles. What was he to make of this fact? The Jews, the seed, the heirs of the promises were rejecting the Messiah, were accursed and under God's condemnation. Has then the word of God fallen, Paul asks? And he answers in Romans 9, 6 like this. It is not as though the word of God has fallen. For, listen to this, it is an unbelievably important sentence in the Bible. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham just because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are reckoned as descendants. Paul's answer is that the descendants of Abraham have not failed to receive the promises because not all Jews are the descendants of Abraham. Isaac, not Ishmael, was the child of promise. Jacob, not Esau, was the child of promise. And right on through Israel's history, there was always within the broad scope of this people a faithful remnant who were the heirs of the full covenant promises. The rest even though they could trace their physical descent to Abraham, were not the descendants of Abraham. This is why John the Baptist said to the unrepentant Jews, do not presume to say, we have Abraham as our father. It'll do you no good. He can raise up from stones children to Abraham. And why Jesus said to the Jews who were trying to kill him, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. He said that to the Jews. Now, that means that the seed of Abraham, which will inherit the promises, is not the same as the Jews. There is a remnant of faith that will receive them. Now, that didn't make Paul happy. It broke his heart, as he says in Romans 9, 2 and 10, 1. And he wept day and night that he might save some at least. But he saw in this the hand of God. Because the unbelief of Israel began to open the gateway to the covenant of Abraham for the nations. That was the most amazing thing Paul ever discovered. It was a great mystery to him and he rejoiced in it. God granted him to understand what had only been hinted at there in Genesis 17 and 12. And this is what he says in Galatians 3. And with this I draw to a close. Tremendously important chapter. One of the top five in all the Bible, I'm sure, is Galatians 3. And here's what he says. I'll put the text together that are pertinent. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who have faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. 
In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then finally in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Who then are the heirs of the promises of Abraham? You are. To whom can it be said, your sins are forgiven? God is for you with all His mighty power. Goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. You will rise from the dead. Your name will be great. You will possess the gates of your enemies. All the land of Israel, indeed the whole earth, will be your inheritance. And you will fill the new world with the knowledge of the glory of God. For as Paul says, all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, All the promises of God are yours, and you are Christ's. And Christ, the seed of Abraham, is God's. Amen.